100 years since Gallipoli. New Zealand remembers. A documentary special. On News Talk ZB. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We say it every Anzac Day as the clear notes of a bugle play in the dark of a dawn service. We recall the thousands of soldiers who never came home, the gap that will never be filled, the poppies and the crosses, row upon row. How will we, how can we remember them? We must hear their voices. We must tell their stories. Before dawn, 100 years ago, on the 25th of April, 1915, as the Anzacs rowed in wooden boats toward the peninsula, their British brothers-in-arms, some 25 kilometres south of them, were also rowing into Cape Hellas. The New Zealand Defence Minister, James Allen, who had been so instrumental in raising the volunteer expeditionary force sent into Gallipoli, had a son who was serving as a lieutenant in the Essex Regiment of the British Army. 28-year-old Lieutenant John Hugh Allen from Wanganui was with his platoon of a dozen men. As they strained their muscles on the oars and their eyes into the darkness, the silence felt like it would never end. Then, with just 50 yards to go, the Ottoman guns up on the ridge opened fire. Entire boats were torn to pieces and drifted away with no survivors. Realising that they were easy targets for the Turkish guns in their floating coffins, men poured overboard from their boats into the water, seeking a safety that would not come. They struggled to swim in their heavy gear, and many of the wounded drowned in the waves. As men clambered through the shallows, they attempted vainly to return fire. Their rifles were wet and useless. Crouched and panicking, each man was faced with a dilemma. Drop their gun and grab another from a fallen soldier. Find some cover and clean their rifle. Or cut their losses and simply run ahead into the mayhem. Of the first 200 soldiers to disembark, only 21 reached the beach. As more reinforcements pushed forward up toward the cliffs, troops ran into rolls of barbed wire. The wire turned out to be much thicker than standard and not easy to cut. Pinned down between the sea and the wire, the shallowest divot in the sand could make all the difference between life and death for a soldier at Cape Hellas. At certain points, small parties got through the entanglements and managed to capture Ottoman trenches. By sheer force of numbers, ground was slowly gained, and after two full days and nights of battle, the exhausted and outflanked Turks began to retreat. The British had not attained their initial objectives. They had won some hard-fought battles for the beaches, but at what cost? The Turkish official history records 1,898 casualties from the landings at Hellas, while the British casualties were around 2,000 men. Lieutenant John Hugh Allen from Wanganui had survived the landings, but he would only live for another 42 days. 
lest we forget. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. 25 kilometres north of the carnage of Cape Helles, the Anzacs were also landing just before sunrise on the 25th of April, as Dr Damien Fenton of Massey University explains. We were supposed to land further to the south on a much more gentle sort of sloping beach. Instead, we landed around Aribernu and were presented with these massive cliffs and ravines um, leading up to uh, what's called the Surrey Bear Range. And it's really steep, harsh ground. Um, it's very deceptive ground. You sort of climb over one ridge and the next thing you realise you've got a massive ravine below you and it's going to be a big haul down there and up the other side to get sort of 20 metres across that way. But in many ways, really, Anzac Day, the 25th of April, the day of the landing, is really more Australia's day than ours because the plan was always that the Australians would land first, the Australians are the ones who land before dawn, and the New Zealanders wouldn't land until later on in the day. And so the New Zealand Infantry Brigade really plays a supporting role to the Australians. Our guys land about just before midday. In spite of the confusion caused by landing at the wrong beach and the cover of darkness, the Australians decided to push on regardless. A decision that was half raw courage and half severe folly. You just had all these guys pushing off into the dark, following their nose basically, trying to get as far inland as possible with no real sort of order or cohesion. Uh, officers couldn't find their units. Um, you know, it was it was it was hopeless. They didn't actually suffer too many casualties. Actually, landing on the beach, apart from one group that actually drifted a bit further to the north, and they actually ran into the sites of machine gun positions that were based to cover uh, an area that we would later call North Beach. And those Ottoman machine gun positions absolutely shot to pieces a small group of Australians who drifted uh, too far north and. Basically, the boats washed up on the beach and everybody inside them was dead. But around Nari Burnu, it wasn't too bad. The Ottoman defenders, about 400 men, half a battalion uh, from the 27th Regiment, they were putting down rifle fire and there was some artillery fire from further north and south that was coming across, but nothing too heavy. And so it's really small arms fire and random shots in the night and so on. Uh, it's very confused. As I say, the, the Australians, as soon as they move off the beach, they start to get lost and mixed up and... Nobody's quite sure where they are or, or, you know, where the rest of the unit is. Confusion continued for the Aussies throughout the morning, with delays in landing further troops compounding that confusion. Late morning, the Canterbury and Auckland brigades of the NZEF began to row ashore. James Jackson of the New Zealand Medical Corps recounted his experience of the journey in. We came in in a rowing boat half full full of water. water and with about 30 men in it. It was the slowest yet most exciting row that I ever had. The shrapnel was trying to stop us all the time and it seemed hours before we ran ashore. The shrapnel is very deadly stuff if it catches anyone in an exposed position and no position is more exposed than an open rowboat out on the water. Once ashore, the gentle rise the men had been promised was nowhere to be seen. Instead, they were faced with sharp inclines. Finger-like ridges and deep ravines were carved into the sandy rock, a terrain inhospitable and deadly. Bracing themselves for action, the Kiwi soldiers began to make their way up into the hills to reinforce the Australians and encounter the Ottoman forces for the first time. 100 years since Gallipoli. New Zealand remembers. A documentary special. On News Talk ZB.
On the 25th of April 1915, 100 years ago this Anzac Day, the New Zealand troops advanced up the hills to reinforce the splintered and scattered Australian battalions. The one thing that comes out of all the accounts of the day is that it's incredibly confused. Nobody's really quite sure what's going on. Nobody really knows who's shooting at who. It really is a battle fought and certainly earlier on in the day in isolation by small groups of men who run into small groups of Turkish defenders. The heavily outnumbered Turks conducted a fighting retreat backwards up the hills as they called for reinforcements. The Ottoman commander of the 19th Division, a 34-year-old Turk named Mustafa Kemal, responded quickly. Mustafa Kemal's leadership of the 19th Division on the day of the landing certainly seems to have been outstanding in that he was a he was an aggressive commander, he was decisive. When that division basically received word of what was happening, Kemal orders his men to get to Ari Burnu as fast as they can. And there is confusion on the Ottoman side because he doesn't actually get to deploy his division as a cohesive division of 12, 13,000 men. They basically go as fast as they can and arrive as individual companies, battalions, and so on. And on one level, there's a danger because uh, as, as they arrive, they're also fighting in isolation to begin with. But Kemal isn't worried by that. He makes the right decision that he needs to get men in there fast uh, rather than wait around to get everything organised and, and, and perfectly planned. He just needs to get men in there fast to stop the Anzacs getting any further inland, getting off the beach. And more importantly, is he is adamant that his men must control the high ground. They must make sure that the Anzacs, first of all, any Anzacs that have got up into the Saribir range, onto the heights up there, they need to be cleared out. And second of all, uh, whatever else happens at the end of the day, um, his men must have control of that high ground. Kamal made his expectations of his men very clear when he told them, I don't order you to fight, I order you to die. In the time that passes until we die, other troops and commanders can come forward and take our place. As the Turkish soldiers fought on and their ammunition ran out, they began to retreat further from the Anzacs. Upon seeing this, Mustafa Kemal sternly rebuked his troops, saying, Never run away from the enemy. If you don't have ammunitions, you have your bayonets. Fix your bayonets and lie down. So the Turkish soldiers fixed their bayonets and lay down. Our Anzac forces were somewhat bewildered by this, and so they also stopped and did the same. Mustafa Kemal later credited this event on the day of the landing as the moment that the Ottoman Empire won the battle for Gallipoli. By the end of the day, it's actually looking very, very tense. And in fact, Burwood, who's the commander of the Australian-New Zealand Army Corps, and Godley, commander of the New Zealand and Australian Division, are both recommending evacuation. But Hamilton orders them to dig in, to stay put and dig in. And in retrospect, some people have criticised Hamilton for that order, and some people have suggested that if we'd evacuated on that first day, then you know we would have avoided everything that, that would come later. And on one level, yes, maybe you could say that. But on the other hand... You can also argue that Hamilton actually saved the situation because if our guys had tried to evacuate, given that it was already a bit of a shambles, it would have been a massacre. Um, you know, the 19th Division would have finished us off, basically. If we'd tried to evacuate, there probably would have been chances of, of mass panic as men realised that, that we were pulling out and nobody wanted to get left behind. I mean, in terms of military operations, one of the hardest to execute successfully is an amphibious landing in the face of the enemy, which is what we were doing in the morning. Even harder a military operation to, to pull off is actually an evacuation in the face of the enemy, which is what Godley and, and Birdwood were suggesting later on that evening. And given that we didn't do the first one particularly well, I can imagine the second one would have been an absolute disaster. So 
Hamilton orders our guys to dig in, and they do. Um, and effectively, after another day or so of pretty intense fighting, effectively the battle for the beachhead, the battle for Anzac Cove is over. The Ottomans have failed to throw us back into the sea, but on the other hand, we've failed our first our objectives, which were to push right through, uh, capture the uh, Mal Tepe, and, and cut the Ottoman line of communications with their troops down at Cape Palace. So it's a stalemate. A stalemate that leaves 25,000 Anzac soldiers pinned down in less than six square kilometres of rugged and hostile terrain, crowded in confusion and facing deadly enemy fire. That was the very first Anzac Day. Johnny Turkey was ready. He primed himself well. He showered us with bullets and he rained us with shells. And in five minutes flat, he'd blown us all to hell. Nearly blew us right back to Australia. And the band played waltzing Matilda. As we stopped to bury our slain. And we buried ours And the Turks buried theirs And it started all over again It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. Oh, 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 it's a lovely walk. Oh, it's a lovely oh, walk. Oh, it's a shame to take the pain. Although we commemorate Anzac Day on the 25th of April every year, the Gallipoli campaign lasted more than eight months. After the shambolic landing and deadly battles that ensued, General Hamilton wrote to General Birdwood. You have got through the difficult business. Now you have only to dig, dig, dig until you are safe. Until World War I, the term digger for the Australian troops had largely referred to coal miners. Kiwis, however, would have thought of the old gum diggers who would spend long hours laboriously excavating the hardened gum of cowrie trees from swamps. The cowrie gum was sold to create a varnish. One buyer noted the life of a gum digger is wretched and one of the last a man would take to. And so, bonded by their wretched conditions, the term digger became one of mateship as the Anzacs dug their trenches and dug them together. With the failure to take our objectives on the first day, effectively the Anzac perimeter is a backwater for the next three months as far as Hamilton and and the generals are concerned. uh, The Anzacs really just have nothing to do other really than to hang on and defend. And instead, uh, Hamilton again concentrates on Cape Palace they actually fight three battles called the, the Three Battles of Crithia, and they effectively lose all three. And in fact, the New Zealanders are brought down for the Second Battle of, of Crithia. This is how much of a backwater Anzac has actually become uh, in the sense that there's no offensive action being planned for Anzac. So Hamilton feels quite safe and happy in actually bringing the New Zealand Infantry Brigade and an Australian brigade off Anzac, ferrying them down to Hellas on destroyers and using them for one of his battles, uh, the Second Battle of Crithia, where we actually, uh, our guys get cut to pieces. We suffer 700 casualties at the Second Battle of Crithia at a place called the Daisy Patch. 
And up to that point, and this is about what, two weeks, three weeks into the campaign, that is the bloodiest battle fought by the New Zealanders up to that point on Gallipoli. At Anzac Cove, the Kiwi and Aussie soldiers struggled under severe conditions. The trench warfare the men experienced was something for which they had not been prepared. The training in Egypt hadn't really, well, couldn't really cover what they ended up experiencing at Anzac. First of all, they're stuck in a really tiny space. I mean, it's less than six square kilometres. It's about 900 metres from the beach to the front line as the crow flies. It's incredibly small. And there's about 25,000 men packed in there, Australians and New Zealanders, on any given day. So the first thing that the guys have to try and get past is the problems surrounding hygiene and water. They're the two biggest problems immediately in terms of of day-to-day life. There are actually a couple of water sources within that area, but they're very small, and there's no possibility that they're going to sustain the drinking needs of 20,000 men, never mind anything else. So all the water has to be shipped in from Lemnos, and again, because of the space constraints, they can't really store much at Anzac itself. So another problem is food, because... The area is so small, you can't store supplies. There is effectively a bottleneck bringing supplies across from Lemnos. Um, The men are forced to live on a very mundane diet, bully beef, army biscuit, jam, and couple that with the hygiene problems, their physical condition starts to deteriorate really quickly, actually. Meanwhile, the Ottoman troops were determined to destroy the morale of their invaders. And leveraging their advantage of the high ground, snipers began to pick off the Anzac troops in a regular, slow and deadly bleed. Both sides lost many soldiers to snipers, with an average of 20 of our boys killed every day. I mean, it, it's really hellish. I mean, I think there's no other word to, to describe it, really. It, it just sounds like an absolute ordeal to have to, had to serve there and live there. And, of course, as I say, there's nowhere safe. So you're effectively... I mean, they had gullies, which they called you know, rest areas and so on, but you, you never really get a chance to rest. There is no behind-the-lines at Anzac. Private John Adams of the Australian 54th Battalion recorded the hell of being pinned down in a trench while snipers picked off his mates. Taking the periscope from him, I too received a shock at the sight of what I estimated to be four battalions of Turks. Forming up for another attack. Bombs were as distant as the moon, our only weapons being rifles and bayonets. Had we attempted to aim over the top, we would have exposed our head and shoulders and have immediately followed our dead pals who'd been shot through the head from the higher ridges flanking the ravine. Beach, with tears running down his cheeks, momentarily criticised our awful predicament and remarked, it's hell to see this mass of Turks not being able to bomb or aim at them. With a periscope fixed to a rifle, it would be possible, he said, to fire accurately without personal danger. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And Lance Corporal William Beach, a builder's foreman back home in Australia, set to work constructing a prototype from broken boxwood and wire. Whilst not quite as accurate, the periscope rifle was still deadly. And soon Beach was brought to headquarters to demonstrate his invention and apply it to a number of rifles. A standard rifle was fixed to a timber frame with a length of string tied to the trigger. An upper mirror was mounted to look along the sights, while the sniper viewed the enemy through the lower one from the safety of his trench. By May 26, a small factory had started at Anzac Cove where Beach began replicating his creation. The Beach periscope rifle soon became an integral device for trench warfare, not only in Gallipoli, but throughout the Western Front. Lest we forget... Every Thursday until Anzac Day... We remember... A special broadcast on Newstalk ZB. (laughs) 
One of the most enduring tales of the early days at Gallipoli is that of Private Jack Simpson and his donkey. Simpson himself was a complex character, originally John Kirkpatrick from Britain. He joined the Merchant Marines as a stoker aboard the Yedda during the peacetime of 1910. On arrival in Newcastle, Australia, he deserted, along with about a dozen other men, and worked odd jobs around the country. At the outbreak of war, Kirkpatrick enlisted in the Australian Army under the name of Simpson, fearing that a deserter would not be accepted. After landing before dawn on April 25, as the Anzacs fought up into the hills, Simpson's mate was wounded. Without getting leave from his commanding officer, he carried the man over his shoulder down to the beach. Heading back up the hill, he found another wounded man to assist and soon spotted an abandoned donkey, which he commandeered for his stretcher-bearing mission. From then on, Simpson and his donkey continued to act as an independent unit without reporting to headquarters. For the first four days, he was technically a deserter until his commanding officer saw the value of his work and agreed to turn a blind eye to Simpson and his ambulance donkey. Colonel John Monash wrote of him, Private Simpson and his little beast earned the admiration of everyone at the upper end of the valley. They worked all day and night throughout the whole period since the landing, and the help rendered to the wounded was invaluable. Simpson knew no fear and moved unconcernedly amid shrapnel and rifle fire, steadily carrying out his self-imposed task day by day, and he frequently earned the applause of the personnel for his many fearless rescues of wounded men from areas subject to rifle and shrapnel fire. On May 19, after 24 days of tirelessly transporting the wounded, Jack Simpson was struck by a machine gun bullet in the back and killed. He was remembered fondly by all at Gallipoli and later immortalised in paintings and sculptures as an Anzac hero. The army biscuits the men were supplied with were a far cry from those we now bake to commemorate Anzac Day. Dry and hard, these army rations had limited nutritional value. Professor of War Studies, Glyn Harper, has said that the original Anzac biscuits were hard to eat, particularly if you had dental problems. They also caused dental problems. To make them edible, men would soften them in tea or water. But water on Gallipoli was strictly rationed. Depending on availability, there was only one or two litres of water per soldier per day. In that heat, they should have been drinking 20. Really, the only way to have a decent wash is to go down to the beach and have a swim. But the problem is, is that the whole area, because the Ottoman Turks have the high ground, nowhere is really safe. Everywhere you go, basically there's a chance you might get hit by a sniper or you might get hit by a random artillery shell that the Ottoman Turks would fire just to keep us on our toes, really. So, you know, it was quite common for men to be wounded while they were having a swim on the beach or in some cases killed. So hygiene is a problem. And as a result of that, um, pretty quickly lice becomes endemic. It's everywhere and it drives the men nuts. It's in their uniforms, it's, it's in their bedding. You just can't escape the lice, really. And then the next big problem is the flies because of the human refuse and discarded food, you know, old tins of bully beef or, or whatever. And, of course, the dead, um, the dead lying out in no man's land. They attract flies, and in fact, just about every letter I've ever read, they'll be complaining about the flies. Um, from all accounts, these flies were just in absolutely epidemic proportions. They've made eating an absolutely disgusting ordeal because as soon as you tried to 
you know, take a spoon of jam out or the flies would be all over it before it even got to your mouth. And the flies, of course, spread disease. So pretty soon there is a chronic problem of, of dysentery. There is a massive outbreak of, of dysentery and various stomach ailments. Um, just about everybody gets a dose at some point. You know, for, for the casualty reports for July, uh, for every one man that, that might be wounded or killed, you know, another four or five uh, reporting sick with dysentery, with gastroenteritis and, and various other chronic complaints. Um, there's only so much room to dig latrines. You know, there's 25,000 men. You know, some of the guys on the ships, because the, the British Navy is offshore supporting the operation still, and some of the sailors talk about the fact that you could smell Anzac Cove before you saw it. The latrines consisted of a metre-by-metre open pit with a branch suspended over it as a seat. It was common for men to soil themselves, so weakened by dysentery and dehydration that they couldn't drag themselves to the pits. One man, who did try to muster the strength, slipped and fell in, and being too weak to lift himself, he drowned in his comrade's filth. I mean, one of the intriguing things is that despite everything they're going through, morale remains high uh, in terms of, of their willingness to fight and their willingness to, to follow orders. You know, throughout this period, there are no major incidents of insubordination or mutiny or, or anything approaching that sort of level of seriousness. I mean, the men really seem to just approach it as this this is their job, this is what we have to do. You know, yeah, conditions are pretty awful, but, you know, you, you could take the good with the bad and you just, you just press on. This Anzac centenary tribute has been made with help from New Zealand On Air. To my wife. I have sent you my diary up to date. I will have to write all my letters on official postcards for some months, but will keep this diary going and send it in sections to the Bank of Australasia whenever I can, asking Cox not to let you have it unless I am reported dead. May 11th, 1915. The most wonderful sunrise. The peak of Samothrace burns pink. The sea suddenly flashed from steely grey to dark blue. The fleet of transports and warships stand out like toys on the water, And like a beautiful white bird, the hospital ship glitters pure white, as if she was a dove with folded wings, waiting as a symbol of peace. The little campfires are burning all over the hill and beach. The Red Cross launch drags the first load of bloody humanity to the ship. Men yawn, call, wash and eat. And hell starts with its sudden bang, smash, and a shower of shrapnel or crack of shell. This lasts all day, till about eight, when the Turkish observer can no longer see the effect of his battery's guns. At nightfall, we get the tally for the last 12 hours. How much New Zealand and Australia have paid for the empire? How many killed, wounded, or sick? The headquarters on the hill telephone their total losses, and deducting from this the number of men attended in the beach hospitals, we arrive at the number of dead and missing. Better dead any day. A number of pathetic little bundles, identity disc, purse, pocketbook, etc., wrapped in dirty handkerchiefs, are handed into the AAG, whose task it is to compute our list of dead. 
Captain Morton has been missing for several days. He was always pointing out the colours of sunsets and skies to me with a wonderful touch of description. I earnestly hope he did not lie watching the sun go down. By the beginning of July 1915, with Anzac forces grimly holding on in hellish conditions on the Gallipoli Peninsula, Sir Ian Hamilton began to re-evaluate his decision to keep the Maori contingent on the island of Malta performing menial tasks. Dr Monty Sutar is an authority on the Maori contingent. There was a request uh, put by Captain Buck, he was at the time, on behalf of the contingent to the generals over there who were um, in charge of the uh, expeditionary force to go into action at, at Gallipoli because they had arrived there and they were being told that they were going to Malta to garrison that island, yet the reinforcements, the third reinforcements who they had gone across with were going straight to Gallipoli. And their plea was, well, ought we not to be treated equally? In fact, they had had more training than third reinforcements, so it was a bit of a slight, they felt. And um, they performed, uh, did the haka and, and other things, and they were inspected, and then the speech was made by Captain Buck on their behalf. And I think by that stage... Um, the look of these guys, the the fact that they were they were willing to go and and volunteer to go to Gallipoli, it went up the line to the um, uh, back to England, and the uh, decision was made. Yes, they, they can go. Uh, I probably added to that. I'm I'm sure with the high casualty rate at Gallipoli, you needed reinforcements, and um, you had them there sitting in Malta, so that probably added to it as well. On July 3rd, the Maori contingent joined their Pākehā compatriots at Anzac Cove. It wasn't long before they too were suffering from malnutrition and disease. The biggest problem with the dysentery is the lack of water. A lot of the cases, I mean, the men are becoming severely dehydrated and you already have a water shortage. So it's just it just ends up being a vicious circle. These, and the, the way that the men refer to it in their letters, it, they become quite casual about it. It's, it's pretty much it, the impression seems to be that everybody has dysentery in one form or another, so you don't make a big deal out of it, and you just try and press on and, and do your job and, and carry on. But for one young private from the Wellington Battalion, pressing on was about to have serious consequences. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. John Robert Dunn was known as Jack to his friends. Born in the small town of Tanui and the Wairarapa to Scottish immigrants, he grew up in the coastal village of Whakataki. He'd worked as a journalist for the Wairarapa Daily Times and the New Zealand Times in Wellington before he signed up at the outbreak of war. As a private in the Wellington Battalion, he'd taken part in the landings on the 25th of April. After falling sick with acute dysentery, he'd been taken to a hospital ship off the coast, and had only just returned to the Gallipoli Peninsula. Now, he's still recovering, he's not in a good way, yet he finds himself on sentry duty, and he falls asleep. And falling asleep while you're on sentry duty in the front line is a court-martial offence that carries a death sentence. And the commander of his battalion, a guy called Colonel Malone, decides that he needs to make an example of Jack Dunn because everybody is in, is in similar bad shape. So he orders Dunn court-martialed, 
and Jack Dunn is found guilty and sentenced to death. Uh, a court-martial made up of New Zealand officers, uh, the British have nothing to do with this, and Colonel Malone, the New Zealand commander of the, of the Wellington Battalion, he signs off on it, and it goes all the way up the chain, because ultimately it had to be signed off by the most senior leadership before it could actually be carried out. Now this thing actually gets ticked off all the way up the command chain until it, it reaches the desk of Sir Ian Hamilton, the overall commander of, of the MEF, and it's uh, Sir Ian, the British general, uh, the ones that, that we like to make so much fun of. He's the one that actually turns around and, and saves Dunn's life and that he orders that the sentence be commuted and not carried out. But there's a tragic end to this because about three days after this is announced, the August offensive begins and Jack Dunn is killed in the fighting at Chanuk Bear. The August offensive would become the bloody climax of the Gallipoli campaign, with the Wellington Battalion playing a central role under the strict leadership of Lieutenant Colonel William Malone. Before they even get to Gallipoli, he'd, he'd established a reputation for being a very fierce disciplinarian, you know, as the example of Jack Dunn proves. So men don't like him, but at the same time, many of them will also say that, that nonetheless they respect him. So there are officers that you could not like, but you could nonetheless respect and that you could still have confidence in, say, when you actually went into battle. And of course, he ultimately has his moment at Chanuk Bear in August. Even after all the Anzacs had suffered, the worst was yet to come. New Zealand troops involved in the August offensive would demonstrate extraordinary valour and give birth to a national tragedy. The story of the ill-fated assault on Chanuk Bear would be written in blood in the history books and etched into the national memory of New Zealand forever. Chanuk Bear, oh Chanuk Bear Does anyone know where the fort of there Went to their graves, nobody cared On Chanuk Bear on Chanuk Bear Chanuk Bear Oh Chanuk Bear Does anyone know where the fort of there Went to their grave Nobody cared On Chanuk Bear On Chanuk Bear Oh Chanuk Bear 